0: The Neurodivergent Woman podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community.
1: We pay our respect to elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libock, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise
0: and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center
1: and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently.
0: On our final episode for season four, we welcome Claire Johnston to the podcast. Claire is a citizen of the Red River Métis Nation who lives on the land of their ancestors in Treaty 1 territory also known as Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. They are a Métis beadwork artist and a proud autistic person who finds immense joy in working with their hands.
1: Claire is a founding member of a grassroots Métis collective called Red River Echoes, which works towards reclaiming sovereignty, land, culture and kinship across the Métis homeland. They are also a member of the Two Spirit Machif Local and a team member of the Restoring Autism Project out of Brandon University, which works towards a liberated future for neurodivergent people through art and challenges Western, capitalist, biomedical and colonial understandings of people who think differently. So we're really excited to have Claire on with us today. So Claire, we always ask, what does neurodivergence mean to you?
2: It means to me that um, I have a, a different way of thinking. Uh, that I've been given uh, gifts that you know that I was given to, to share with the world, and those might be different from other people's gifts. But yeah, generally that I have a different way of thinking and that, you know, I have, that it is a gift.
1: Yeah, great. Very succinct. I love it. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, and we say all the time, like we always just like to ask everyone that question because we find that people have a different, different responses and sort of different perspectives. And what I really liked about your answer there is that idea of gift and gifts. And I'm sure we're going to talk a lot more about this in the episode today. Um, But I generally find that, any Indigenous perspective on things like neurodivergence or difference or things like this tends to have a lot more of that language flavour compared to, say, a Western perspective on it. But I don't want to jump the gun. I'm sure we're (laughs) going to get into that.
0: What has the impact of colonization been on the understanding of neurodivergence in your community and how has this affected neurodivergent people in your community?
2: Yeah, super, super huge, huge question. I think I think generally about colonization of these lands through policies in Canada that, you know, that are similar to um, Other experiences of colonization um, around the world, including um, Australia, like has a very similar uh, experience of colonization as we do. You know, impacts of residential schools, land theft, genocide, uh, all of these measures that have been used to eradicate who we are as Indigenous people on our own lands. And so when I think about how colonization has impacted the way that you know, myself, my family and my community understand uh, people who think differently are neurodivergence. It's not different from any other teachings, or ways of being that we've had that have been disrupted. When I look at my own life, I'm 26 years old, I was I received my autism and ADHD diagnosis uh, less than a year ago. So Received quite a late diagnosis. And it's in the same time, only in like probably the past two years, actually, maybe not past two years, maybe three years. Um, have I also been able to understand who I am as a Metis person, rooted in community and with my kin? Have I understood like my gender identity? I mean, I still don't understand my gender identity, my sexuality. And I think when I look at that and how Little that I've understood myself until this point. Um, I think it just goes to show how severed that connection has been in understanding myself as a very much a direct result of colonization. And, you know, it's been through going to ceremony, connecting with elders, knowledge keepers, people in my own community, very intentionally, that I'm just on like the cusp at 26 years old to start to understand who I am. So that's from my own very personal perspective. But I think generally when I received my diagnosis, I immediately thought, okay, like, what are our own people? What do Métis, how do we understand autism or ADHD? What have our roles been? What have our responsibilities been in community? Um, You know, generally difference isn't seen. It isn't seen in the Western way, where if you're different, you're subjugated. And you're oppressed and you don't fit in here. You know, difference for us is wow, you're special. Creator made you this way for a reason. We need you. You have things to bring to us.
1: That's such a great articulation of often what is the difference between, say, an Indigenous versus a very medicalized Western perspective on difference. And, you know, I feel like in the latter, exactly as you said, it's like anything that's different is a pathology or it's defective or it's something to be cured or fixed or even eradicated, right? Um, It's like, no, 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 we don't want this. Whereas shifting that lens and kind of, I think it's even important for people who are non-Indigenous to hear these different perspectives and realize that Actually, there is a different way of thinking about this. There's a different way of conceptualizing this. And, Claire, I just loved, again, your explanation of how, um, you know, over the last couple of years so much identity shifts seem to have gone on for you. And that word severance I thought was just really visceral, like the effect for you of colonization was being severed from those ties to identity.
2: Yeah. I tend to think the ways that I think I've been exploring uh, the way that I think has also been very connected to my sexuality. And I I tend to think about being autistic from a Metis perspective in a lot of similar ways as I view myself being too spirit. So when I when I think about uh being autistic, um and you know, having ADHD or being ADHD and wanting to very much revitalize or be part of the resurgence of understanding ourselves um, rooted in our own cultural understandings, Um, I think about two-spirit identity. So the word two-spirit is a term that was coined by uh, Myra Laramie in Winnipeg here. And uh, Myra was given this word two-spirit in a dream and gifted it with the community. And it meant that she held two spirits within her Both the feminine and the masculine. And again, result of colonization, anyone who didn't fit into, um, you know, gender binaries or having different sexualities for indigenous people that often just meant death, you know, in residential school or in society in general. So, Myra was given this word to spirit, and now the word to spirit is used by Indigenous people globally to uh, describe ourselves as having very specific roles, very specific spiritual roles, um, and and responsibilities as well. And I've received the teaching that two spirit people are have like a very close and special connection to Creator, and there's very specific knowledge that two spirit people hold. That's meant to be shared. And so it's important that from a young age, people are connected in ceremony. They're taught who they are, they're acknowledged for who they are. And so there's been this massive resurgence and people claiming their two spirit identity here in Turtle Island, but globally. And when I think about neurodivergence and being Metis, I think about also being two spirit in the same way. There's really specific gifts I have because of the way that I think. And so I view that as a gift. You know, I've held so much shame about the ways that I think and the ways that I behave. And so the more I speak with old people, the more I, you know, go to ceremony and I hear teachings, I'm like, oh, that sounds like, you know, these things that I've been taught to be super shameful about and be quiet about are actually supposed to be like there. They're supposed to exist. They're supposed to be acknowledged. It's supposed to be nurtured. I'm supposed to understand that these things about myself so that I can, I can contribute it to society. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention, you know, the path of me understanding maybe my spirituality, my sexuality and my neurology, like is so, so interconnected.
1: Yeah. You, you put it so well, Claire, the interconnected parts of all your different identities, these things aren't siloed aspects of us. Right. And, you know, having that sense of who you are but also the duality of then how does that serve my community and how can we have this kind of reciprocal bi-directional relationship, um, you know, between the individual and the community where it's like the individual is held and taught about who they are and honoured for who they are. Their gifts are identified and nurtured. And then it's about, okay, great, now I can use these gifts and use these abilities to give back to that community.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's really important. To, well, I think it's important in general that indigenous knowledge is respected as legitimate knowledge. You know, we've been here since before time, uh, is what um elders and you know will say to me, we've been here since before time. And when you've been here since before time, you probably know things. So,
0: <laughs> Yeah, I really am hearing too that having that context, having that connection to your own community and the knowledge that's passed down generationally in your community and your culture, that would be so important for identity formation. And I can see, you know, with that being severed how much more difficult it would be to connect um, with those various identities. And in particular, something I've noticed with autistic people is a lot of us have the need to know the why, and we need to know all of the context, all of the information to then form you know, a sense of self and a sense of identity. So I could imagine that it would be difficult if you were neurodivergent and autistic and you had that cultural context and all of that rich information be severed and not be there to guide you.
2: I kind of joke, I'll, jo- I'll joke sometimes, um, you know, that uh, I take an ADHD medication, uh, Vyvanse, love it. Life-changing, I have energy, wonderful um but i joke like well i don't joke my dad he lives in the bush he he he's lived there for seven years he has no running water he logs all of his own firewood bush guy anyway i look at my dad. He lives alone in the bush and i like to think you know i think i probably wouldn't need adhd medication if i was like in the bush hunting i was picking berries I was doing my bead work, doing quill work. I was in my element and I was on my traditional lands doing the things that I was like born to do. Anyway, I'd be thriving. (laughs) But one day I hope I will live like my dad.
0: And not being alone as well. Do you know what I mean? Like even just like, even if you live alone, you're still part of that community and you're not expected to do every single role. Or every single like practical thing completely by yourself, which I think is a very, Western expectation. You know, you have to do everything by yourself, be completely independent from everyone. Um, and I just don't think that's really realistic.
1: Yeah. And I mean, we've talked on previous episodes about that concept of interdependence and actually how much more functional that is for everyone, you know, totally opposite ends of the spectrum. We've got in de- like complete independence and complete dependence, neither of which are functional. Definitely as a Western society, we need to move more back to the dependence end of the spectrum and realize that it is actually completely functional to be interdependent. So that's a great point, Monique, about having that kind of community around you, even if you do like your solitude and you do want to be a bushman chopping wood. So, Claire, we've talked a bit about the effect of colonization um, on, you know, traditional Indigenous understanding of neurodivergence and identity and all the factors that go into that. I'm wondering for you, what would decolonization of neurodivergence look like?
2: Yeah, I think there are some folks that are doing really great work on this. Um, I think one personal mention is uh, Grant Bruno in Alberta here, who is a Cree uh, researcher and father of uh, two autistic children and is doing the work from a Nehio perspective of understanding autism, you know, that's, you know, doesn't view neurodivergence from a deficit. Why is it important? Oh my gosh, I think I just think about, again, like bringing it back to the gifts. And not even for neurodivergent folk, but also disabled folk generally, of how little we are allowed and supported to contribute to society, period. The loss, you know, knowledge and beauty that hasn't come into this world because of, you know, really. Horrible violent systems is like very, very sad. It's very sad. I even think about my own family and due to things like classism, ableism, racism, I've had incredibly gifted, intelligent, generous, beautiful ancestors and made amazing contributions. You know, I'm not saying they didn't, but, you know, I just look at if we would be supported in the ways that we are meant to to bring what we have to this world, like, wow. So when I think about decolonizing understandings of neurodivergence and the importance of that, it's like the untapped potential and not in like a capitalist way whatsoever, you know, not like, oh, we could have a very productive workforce. No, just even in my own life, I I had lots of gifts as a young person and I was pulled in many directions. And I studied politics. I worked at the the Legislative Assembly here. Then I worked at the House of Commons in Ottawa as a parliamentary assistant. And, you know, I was good at what I did, very good at what I did. Uh, it was very meaningful for me, I have a very strong sense of justice, you know, very autistic thing. Really good at research, really good at writing. I can, like, write super fast. I have a lot of the gifts that are, like, really great for this type of work. Thing is, terribly ableist colonial, racist, terrible institution to work with. At. So a year or a year and a half ago, I had to go on a year long of sick leave. I was so burnt out and like very mentally ill. It was quite scary. I was, you know, I was living in Ottawa. I was away from my community, um, you know, on the other east part of Canada. <laughs> and um, like having meltdowns every single day and like the energy that it takes, first of all, to have a meltdown, and then also to like get myself out of that, and then continue literally working, wasn't a space where my needs were, were honored. And I think having to go on a year of sick leave, in a snap second, I was like, oh my God, I can't take this. I moved back home. I lived with my aunt. And I mean, I'm very, very fortunate. My aunt Jill, I love her to death. She took me in for a whole year and was like, this is a refuge. You're going to stay with me. I don't want you to worry about when you're waking up. She wanted to take me in, provide me like a very safe space. I'm used to constantly highly monitoring my behaviors, even with the people that I live with, like hyper, hyper aware with people that I live with. Right. Um, And so moving in with my aunt and her, actually, I think it was like one of the first times in my entire life where I was really given permission to just be. And that allowed me to heal and and like from burnout, get well. I got, you know, my diagnoses during that time. I did therapy during that time. I focused on artwork during that time. I can't say enough about my aunt, but we just talked about community, right? And how it's such a lie that we are meant to be so hyper-independent and that it's shameful to, you know, I lived rent-free with my aunt. I should not be embarrassed about that. My aunt wanted to do that for me. And like, I really pushed back on my aunt. I was like, no, I'm going to pay rent. And she's like, no. And I talked to my dad about it even. And he said, you need to honor that your aunt wants to do that for you. And I was like, oh, okay, you're right. And so, anyway, all of this is is to say that having that year with her actually allowed me to find out like how I wanted to live the rest of well, not the rest of my life, but you know, make really intense choices about how I want to move forward. So, you know, I decided to leave my job. I decided I'm not I'm not working in politics anymore because I'm going to be ill. And if I don't have a job that that allows me to have flexibility and autonomy and agency, I will be ill. So during that time, I focused on my artwork, on my beadwork. And you know, through the support of my aunt and through the support of members of my own community, now I'm doing my beadwork practice full time and I would have like never ever imagined that I would have been able to do that. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. I love that you, you know, through this kind of period of almost enforced rest. And being given like a safe place to land, you were able to have the space to actually recover from that burnout and make some yeah, decisions about what you want your next steps forward to be like, but knowing that it had to be sustainable for you. Um, and not doing things the way that everyone else is doing them, I guess. And I just love the idea as well of your aunt giving you that safe space. And it sounds like it was with no demands, like no demands on when to get up or expectations on you to perform in a certain way. Being able to rest without those pressures and demands is so rare for people to
1: find but also so important for healing and recovery. I think, you know, something that we hear often from listeners and in our Patreon community and definitely something I've experienced too, and I feel like Monique, you've probably experienced this as well, is this idea of, you know, to bring it back to identity, this idea in the West of your identity being tied to your productivity or your achievement or what you have to, you know, in inverted commas, show. For your existence, essentially. And so, even thinking about being granted that space to heal, like you described, Claire, there can often be a bucking against that where it's like, no, 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 no. I can't possibly do that. And ultimately, that's a friction internally around, well, what does this mean for my identity? Am I just this useless sack of potatoes that, you know, doesn't have a purpose on this earth? And I think. As with anything, when we're trying to let go of maybe an unhealthy or unhelpful behaviour that we're engaging in or a mindset or an identity framework... There can't just be a vacuum. You've got to have something to replace it with. And this is where I think uh, Indigenous populations and Indigenous understandings of these things, everything that we've talked about already on the episode, is so important for people to know. And as you said, Claire, to take it seriously and to value it as legitimate held knowledge because I think that is an amazing identity shift for anyone that it's like actually crazy idea maybe you are valuable just because you're a human being maybe you don't need to be producing constantly so yeah i think that's something for people to think about um and being getting to a place where you're okay to be held right just held in that soft place So I guess my other question on this too is, you know, we know, we've talked about the importance of decolonizing. I'm wondering, Claire, what do you feel like the practical steps to that would be? Is it just kind of more education? Is it changing policy around how we educate young kids? What are the functional practical steps to doing that?
2: Yeah. Oh my gosh. it It, it is a big question. I think for Indigenous peoples, we live in such a different reality from the rest of the population that those things very first step have to be addressed, you know, with your very basic human rights being violated, you know, not having access to clean drinking water, um, having, a pipeline, go through your territory and like destroy all the salmon population that you rely on to sustain yourself. All of these things are colonization and action still. I believe that systems can't necessarily all be decolonized. Some of these systems are, you know, people say systems are broken. No, some systems are working really, really well because they're meant to be violent systems and they're meant to oppress people. And so you can't decolonize them. You have to destroy them and you have to create new institutions. And Indigenous people, we have to be supported to revitalize our own governance systems. In Canada, we have the Indian Act. So First Nations in Canada, we have the three groups of Indigenous peoples, First Nations, Métis and Inuit. First Nations people are still under a system of apartheid uh, in Canada, and it's called the Indian Act. And when South Africa was looking at apartheid, they looked at Canada and they looked at our Indian Act system, which we still have. I mean, my people, the Métis Nation, were currently negotiating a treaty uh, with Canada. So there's all of these things that are necessary for autistic Indigenous people to be supported and be who we are. Um, And some of those things are very directly related to our human rights. I'll mention the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So there was a bill, Bill C-15, that passed last year in the House of Commons and received royal assent. And so, I mean, I don't know how much Canada will hold itself accountable for its own human rights abuses, but I think UNDRIP provides a really good outline for the very, very, Minimum requirements of what needs to occur for Indigenous people to survive and have our have our rights realized. And, you know, there are very specific parts of the UN Declaration that have to deal with Indigenous people with disabilities. And, you know, our own, so my people, right? Like our governance systems have really been impacted by colonization. Like our politics and our community are really messy. And so you know, like I don't even have support for my own nation as a disabled person for me and and where I'm at, the most like concrete thing that I'm doing in my life is that I'm trying to build a network of autistic indigenous people or indigenous people who identify as thinking differently in my circle. And there's such little visibility and acknowledgement of who we are. and, you know, we attract one another. We like spending time with each other. So I've noticed in the past year, like, oh my God, I think like most of my friends are autistic. And I think when we have spaces as autistic people to be in community with one another, that's like so powerful. So, so powerful. Because we have our own solutions, right? Yeah, there's like huge things that need to occur. But then there's like the really grassroots level things that also have to occur. And I think it's like a nice place to start in thinking about how we're relating to ourselves and then like people just in our own communities and our own networks.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great, um, sort of funnel approach there, you know, where it's like things need to happen on the macro scale, but then things can happen on the micro scale too, you know, in that kind of small, like what you're doing, like building a small community around you of people who have had similar experiences, who think similarly. Um, but I just wanted to touch quickly on um, one of your earlier points about some of the macro stuff, because I think that that's really important for people to hear in that ultimately, and this is going to sound like such a dumb and obvious statement, but I'm going to make it. Um, (laughs) Ultimately, to decolonize neurodivergence, we need to treat Indigenous people as people, as human beings that have valid thoughts and knowledge and ideas and are valuable and worthy people. Um, And I think exactly as you said, Claire, like there's no way that we can actually ultimately get to a point of this sort of deep understanding, mindset shift, framework shift, if we're still behaving in ways that are violent um, and oppressive. It boils down basically to respect.
0: Like literally having respect for the person in front of you um, and having respect as someone from like a Western culture, having that respect of Indigenous ways and and knowledge and people. Um, I actually don't understand how it can be so hard for people to just respect others. Like I literally don't get why it's so hard
1: <laughs> for some people. <laughs> I think I think that's an autistic thing, Monique. Like, I think I think this is probably where like there's that overlap, like intersecting identities, right? Because we know like autistic people are people who do change the status quo, who do say, like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, why are we doing it like this? Because there's less kind of reliance, I guess, or dependence on social norms or just the way things have been done. So I would agree with you. Like, I feel like that too, but I think lots of autistic people are often baffled by these huge injustices or, like, weird ways that people behave that's violent towards other people. Like,
0: WTF people? Like, I don't know. Often I'm the one that ends up giving people a reality bitch slap. Um.
2: (laughs) Me too, too, Monique. Like, um, I, yes, absolutely. I think that's why, like, even me working in politics was – you know, I'm like, it's not that hard. <laughs> <laughs> it is so obvious what like, excuse me like um, so it's very frustrating, you know, when these things are so clear in my mind, I understand how all of these systems in- intersect to make a sick society, and it's like, okay, if we did these, these these things, it'd be great. you know, going back to like, oh, why don't people just act right? I think it has to do too with like. People have to be willing to give up power and also adjust the ways that they're used to living and used to understanding about themselves. It's not an easy thing to do. And again, like that's a systemic thing, but that's also like a personal one-on-one type of thing. But I've had like wonderful, wonderful friends in my life who are non-autistic and non-Indigenous who have been like incredible friends and support people to me. And that requires my friends actually giving up some power and being very vulnerable And like maybe making some hard decisions about, about things. And um, I don't have a ton of folks in my life who are that dedicate or are dedicated in that way, but I do have some and man does that feel good that we're both on the path together you know i've noticed that it's not so much about power
0: dynamics um in autistic culture or maintaining your status quo on the hierarchy like if you have a higher power level over someone else being like oh i need to hoard this and i need to you know retain my power and do all the social maneuvering to kind of get higher on the social ladder a lot of autistic people um will often find that they might rise to positions of power, potentially, because of different gifts or abilities that they might have, but then they actually go, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like being in this high position of power or I don't like playing the game. Um, And a lot of them actually are quite happy to like sometimes eventually leave or give up that power because it never really meant that much to them in the first place. Or some people will stay and try to use their power position of power in society for good, but all the stuff, the neurotypical stuff around that actually ends up burning them out.
2: I mean, that is so true in my life. I started working, at the House of Commons as a parliamentary assistant when I was 22 years old, like I, there was no one as young as me in that space. And, you know, by all external measures, that was like highly successful, the, the role that I had. Right. I didn't view it that way at all. Like I didn't care. I I went to work in like very plain clothing, you know, I was a hyper-professional and for me to leave in my mind, like it wasn't giving up power or prestige or anything. It wasn't part of my identity, but uh, yeah. And then, and then it was like exactly that. Like, I don't like playing the game. I found, I find it really sick. I find it gross. People are going there. Like I'm going there. Cause I am like, I live in Winnipeg and I literally see people's human rights being violated on the street every single day. We have the highest percentage of Indigenous people um, living in Winnipeg in all of Canada. And so with that, we're often seen as like the epicenter for human rights abuses. So I knew why I went to Ottawa to work at the House of Commons. And it wasn't about climbing a ladder and it wasn't about getting ahead. And it wasn't about playing games and or manipulating people. Or it was like, oh, these are hard facts and I'm going to say them. And you're supposed to make the laws... In the ways that make sense for this problem. But it's no, I get there and it's, you know, it's about power. It's about, it's about winning elections, period. And it was really sick to me. And even the way that other staff would speak to me, you know, I didn't have friends. I didn't have any friends because I, I didn't connect with people. I found it really disturbing how people were led to do this work. So uh couldn't agree more. <laughs>
1: So Claire, you shared us that you have this sort of idea of collecting stories from your Métis community uh, on neurodivergence, and you've talked a little bit already today on the episode about cultivating that community around you. Could you just tell us more about that and what that project is and um, yeah, just kind of flesh that out for us?
2: Yeah, so I am a team member of a research project uh, called Restoring Autism in Education out of Brandon University. The way I got involved with them is I was actually a research participant. Um, They were doing research on autistic indigenous people in Southern Manitoba. Um, I saw the posting. I think my cousin posted it and I was like, oh, that's me. And that's like really oddly specific. And I was just preparing for my... Uh, assessment at that point. And so it was a two-part research project um, that I'd be participating in. So the first one was an interview. And then the second one was a storytelling workshop. And I would be supported with um academics uh, to support me in creating the video and to learn the software to create the video. Um, and also supported by elders. So I did my interview. It was, I think it was only supposed to be 30 minutes. It was like two hours long. And It was my first time, I think, like having people witness my um, experience for what it is and having like autistic people witness and validate my experiences. It was absolutely radical to me. I left just being like, I don't know, I can't describe it. It it was really incredible. So we did the interview and then I did the storytelling workshop and I I got to create the short film. It was really supposed to be about the research was about, you know, my K to 12 education. I wanted to create a video that was all the positive things I love and not necessarily focused on. The bad things about my educational experience. Yeah. So what I did was I created like a short video that was just a compilation of me making things and using my hands. I have really good dexterity. Um, and that's again, like, that's a gift I know I have for my dad and for my grandpa. I know that a lot of autistic people don't have good dexterity. So it's kind of, um, but we're very much the autistics that are like really good with the fingers, um, so I created this video. I was supported to do so. It ended up going on exhibit at a gallery called Tangled Arts in Toronto, um, which exclusively exhibits work of disabled artists. My participation in the in the research was incredible. I've re I've participated in other research studies, but um I So heavily benefited and opened up all these doors and resources for me. I think that when researchers are actually considering how research participants are benefiting and especially autistic people, like especially in the context of autistic people and how awful and evil a lot of the research that is done on us uh, is that it was really, really beautiful to me to participate in this research and to benefit from, from it so much. The founder, director of the research project, um, her name is Dr. Patty Douglas. She is just so wonderful. I can't say enough about her. <laughs> but um I just I said to her, I met with her this summer and I said, you know, Patty, I have this, I need to know how Metis people, like I need to know how my people view people who think differently. And You know, I'm asking, I'm going around and I'm asking community members and nobody knows. Like nobody knows what our people think about autism. I know that the knowledge is there and I know that some people must have these stories. And I have those stories too. It's just not said that they're autistic. I have my grandpa's memoir. So lucky that my grandpa left a memoir. I read it every, no, not every once in a while. I read it often because I feel very connected to my grandpa. There's so many stories in my grandpa's memoir. I'm like, oh my God, this is so autistic. And I like, I see myself in his stories. I listen to the stories that my auntie's telling me that my dad tell me. And it's like, yeah, we are all this way and we have for generations. And so I know the stories are there. I know other Métis have the stories. These stories are out there across our, our homeland as Métis. Actually, and, and not, you know, I'm speaking about Métis specifically because that's my people, right? um but you know these stories are are global and they exist i think certain indigenous peoples have been impacted by colonization in different ways and so for some nations their understandings of autism are really strong and they have like they know who autistic people are in their community they they have words and they have names for them but there's different experiences right and so in my context that isn't the case and so I you know was talking with community members about I really wanted a word for who I am like in our language in Michif and was asking people around and um cuz we also like we have 900 Michif speakers left
1: when you cut people off from their language that has such a ginormous, massive impact on their whole understanding. Because the way that we understand the world around us is via language, right? What words for different things, how we conceptualize different concepts into word packages. So a lot of these Indigenous communities where it's like the language itself is going extinct, you know, we're talking about violence before. To me, that is one of the most extreme acts of violence that can be conducted against a society and a people's.
2: Yeah, it, it it really is. Um, yeah, it really is. I don't, you know, I don't have anyone in my family who speaks the language. I, I barely have anyone in my community, generally, who speak the language. It's been common for Métis, um, for us to speak up to seven languages. Um, and there still are some elders who, who speak a whole lot of languages. Um, one of my elders speaks five languages. And three of those are indigenous languages, and then English and French. But yeah, like your whole worldview is rooted in your language and rooted in the land. One of my elders, um, his name is Bruce Sinclair. Uh, I was talking to him about this and he said, Claire, have you looked at, he's like, you need to go to our language or, you know, and he wasn't speaking about my He was speaking about Cree, um, which is also what my ancestors spoke. And he said, you need to look at the Cree language and you need to look at how Every single word that includes difference in it, that's going to start to give you an idea of how to think about yourself. And so I was like, oh my God, like I never, I never thought about how language learning that can be part of like how I am decolonizing myself and how I understand myself as a meaty autistic person. So kind of within that t- same time period, I was speaking with a community member and I was expressing how I want a word that isn't autism to describe myself as part of that journey for myself. And so there is a mid uh, language teacher named Heather Suter here at the University of Winnipeg. And she was able to provide the word uh, pitoche teitem, uh, which means he, she, they, one who thinks differently. And so like as much as I can now, I'm trying to use that word to describe myself, and I need to learn more of my language, too, <laughs> but I'm starting there and and using that, and language is is a really important part of this all, and so going back to gathering stories, we need visibility, we need stories for young people to look at to understand themselves, so you know. I'm thinking about we we need to collect stories of autistic people. It doesn't have to be written, it can also be spoken or having different ways of recording people's experiences, um, whether that's through art or, you know, whatever. But, you know, that's something that I wanted when I found out about how my brain works. And so I want that for other young people. And so Patty and I have been brainstorming since, and she's been supporting me heavily to take the lead on ideas for us to do that in partnership with community. And one of the things that we're now doing together. We're working on a neurodiversity module that will soon be published for teachers um, as a resource for teachers. Um, and within that module, I write about my family um, and about our intergenerational experience of being people who think differently. We're now organizing a first-ever critical autism summit that's going to happen here in in uh, in twenty twenty-four, and we're going to invite you know organizers, academics, community members globally. Monique, should we go to Manitoba next year? No, you're coming. You're coming. <laughs> it's, it's gonna be out on the land too, like at Clear Lake. It's not gonna be an urban center. It, you know, it's gonna be, yeah, it's gonna be super autistic friendly. Indigenous knowledge is going to be at the forefront. Um, and I'm trying to get funds to enable autistic indigenous people to come in and be able to attend uh the summit because like i said before i think just straight up being able to gather in the same place together is so powerful and needed so neurodiversity module and the critical autism summit and then one thing I'm very excited about that I'm working on with Patty or Patty's a, the Restoring Autism Project is a collaborator on is I've applied for an arts grant with my dad. I kind of spoke a, a little bit before about having a very deep connection and working with my hands and doing that with my family members too. Since I was young, I always worked with my hands and my dad supported me to, my dad and I have like very, very similar neurotype. He is the person, him and my aunt are the two people in the world who see me like they really see me and they don't question me. Like they know my intent. They know me. So I'm also very connected to my grandpa. You know, I spoke about him before, but really I feel this very deep connection between myself, my dad and my grandpa and, and these three generations. My grandpa ended up being an elevator mechanic with Otis elevators. He could wire an elevator, like the fastest they ever had. He was a strong union member, won awards. Like he, he was just an, he was incredible at what he did. He also was, he would build fiddles, he could make his own guns. He, my grandpa made anything and everything and he was so generous. He never sold anything. Um it was always to help others. And you know my dad is the same way. Super generous, really good at fixing building. My dad was also um worked for Otis Elevators and just very gifted in, in making and engineering and both of them didn't have a high school education, didn't graduate. Um, and so incredibly intelligent, but have been told like, you're stupid. You're like all of these things. And I know, you know, I'm doing my artwork full time off of my artwork. And I think about my dad and I think about my grandpa and it's like, oh my God, they're a way better artists than me. And I carry that with me knowing that they didn't have those same opportunities but they're with me and it's important for me to follow this path and really honor like these gifts that they've given me so in collaboration with the restoring autism project we've applied to a grant me and my dad to do this collaborative project together where i bead a really big metis style we do flower we mostly do flower bead work and so i want to create this, uh, wall pocket. So like a wall pocket is sort of, um, like there's European wall pockets as well, but, um, this is like a, this will be a Métis style wall pocket. It was pretty common for us as Métis to have wall pockets in our homes because, um, kind of different from um, other indigenous people, uh, we were often literate. Um, so we would often write letters. And so wall pockets were places where we would keep documents and that sort of thing. Um, so they had really a practical use, but, um, and us as a people, we were also the uh, Dakota would call us the flower beadwork people because we were just like obsessed with flower beadwork. We put it on our dogs, on our horses, like on our homes. So the idea is I create this huge, beautiful wall pocket. It has three pockets, one to represent my my grandpa, one for my dad and one for myself. And the flower beadwork will tell the story of us being people who think differently but are connected intergenerationally to one another. And then the the pocket itself will hold items and letters, but are important to the three of us. Um, and then, so that's my role in the project. And then my dad, incredible woodworker, he will be creating a frame, a wooden frame, like a really beautifully carved wooden frame for the wall pocket to sit in. And then again, like, you know, coming back to collecting stories, the intention with creating this piece is for, well, first of all, for it to stay in our family. So it's like, this is a material object that will really concretely say who we are for generations to come. And then the other thing is that, you know, I want the opportunity for my dad to be acknowledged as... An artist he's had a lot of barriers in his life you know my dad lives a good life and is happy where he's at but he's had a lot of a lot of really intense struggles um you know being criminalized experiencing homelessness but like incredibly resilient and flipping brilliant and so it's not important for him to have acknowledgement but i want that for him so We're going to create this piece together. And then we're going to, with Restoring Autism, together look for opportunities where my dad and I, we can exhibit this piece together and we can talk about our family and use what we have made as a storytelling, as a way to tell stories. Thank
1: you so much for sharing that with us. Because I think, again, it's another moment where we need to think about how we conceptualize or think the format of a story should take. You know, and in a very literate, uh, reliant society, it's like this idea that stories always have to be the written word. But there's actually so many other formats that storytelling can take. And I think, yeah, I love this project of expanding that definition of what is a story? How do we represent the story of our family or the story of my life or the story of our cultural community in all these different modalities? Yeah, I think that's quite freeing.
0: Just listening to what you're saying, Claire, I think um, having Indigenous-led research is super important. And just even further, Indigenous led research into neurodiversity, disability, people who think differently, super important. When I was doing um, a bit of a literature review for one of my trainings, I tried to look up what research there was available on autism, like on different Indigenous populations. And I could only find like six studies in the world that looked on autism in Indigenous populations. Yeah. Uh, so there's not many, and I don't know how many were actually Indigenous-led either.
2: Yeah, I do know. So I just found like two weeks ago, Kawisis First Nation, they uh, have an autism report that speaks specifically to their pre understanding of autism. And I only found it two weeks ago, but it's beautiful. It has like five translations of of autism in their language so maybe that was one of like the seven that you found but it's like wow we have far to go yeah so far to go
0: so for anybody listening to this episode of the podcast if you identify as indigenous and neurodivergent someone who thinks differently is autistic and adhd please reach out to claire and and we will be posting their contact details on the episode show notes
1: So Claire, we've talked already a little bit about your work as a bead worker. I'd love to hear more though about how that kind of interacts with your neurodivergence and what role, I guess, you think um, your neurodivergence plays in that.
2: Yes. So for me, everything about bead work to me is who I am as an autistic worker, like everything. When I first was taught how to bead, I've had a lot of special interests, but the, like I tried this and I knew, I was like, I'm doing this for the rest of my life. It felt so good in my hands and I, I just couldn't stop dreaming. Like I was, oh my God, I want to make this. I don't want to make it. It's just like, it's it has absolutely been the largest, most important special interest in my life. And it's really beautiful because it intersects with so many parts of me that are important. And then, you know, now I'm doing my beauty work as my job which is insane and so I just get to do my special interest all the time and I've chosen and found ways to have no really intense demands on myself with that because um the thing with beadwork is it is slow it is so so slow and so for me like it's just it's beautiful how it feels in my hands Um, I get to manipulate the thread. I get to feel the beads. I have like tension on the thread, the sensory aspect. I work with smoked moose hide. And so smelling that smoked moose hide when I'm working on it, you know, there's that. There's our Métis beadwork is very bright. It's floral. It's very colorful and it's very intricate. And so the colors of our beadwork, my brain just loves it. I'll sit in bed, maybe instead of watching Netflix, sometimes I'll just stare at an old piece of Metis beadwork and I can look at that and study it and enjoy it for like 30 minutes. Just one image there, the tactileness of it, the repetition, right? I'm it's stitch by stitch by stitch over and over again, and I can sit there. And before I was medicated, (laughs) probably one of the most difficult things for me was like really intense rumination. And when I found beadwork, it was like something that I was focused on that like forcibly made my mind quiet. And that was incorporating my body and my mind with something I have to be so hyper focused. I'm working with like, you know, a quarter of a millimeter. That's what I'm looking at. Right. So it's so fully involved that like my mind only, you know, it has to be focused on that one thing. I found out that other bead workers don't can't bead for like the same duration that I do. Like I can almost go forever beading. I don't get bored of it. It is sometimes I'm like, I wish I didn't have to eat or go to the bathroom. I just want to bead <laughs> and not have to do these other silly things. The really wonderful thing that beadwork has brought me to is community. Going to a beading circle and getting together with friends and being able to bead is a safe, accessible way for me to socialize. And I think art in general is a really effective way for a lot of autistic people to socialize, you know, just like co-making together. Uh, and not having that pressure to, to have to perform, to have to engage in like this social game. So in addition to like doing my own beadwork, I teach Métis beadwork workshops, um, in schools and with community organizations. And, you know, I used to not be, I mean, I've only had my diagnosis for like less than a year, but I was pretty, I shared that really sparingly at the beginning. Because, you know, it's like very much figuring things out and like trying to understand who might be safe to share that with, who not, what would the benefits be? And so, you know, I've come to a place now where, you know, I'm teaching workshops and I'm like, oh, I have an opportunity to talk to kids who are neurodivergent and are queer and are indigenous and have never met another person, like another adult who is and said that they are. And I'm like, oh, I could say. I could say I am. And so I have been. And like over the last, you know, since January, I've done probably like 20 workshops and taught, wow, now probably like hundreds of people. And I always tell folks that I'm autistic and that I have ADHD and that I'm queer. And I open it for anyone to speak to me about any of those things. And so I've had young people share with me that I've never had an adult tell me they're autistic. And like, oh my god, I didn't think that you would have existed like this. You know, I've had young people tell me about the medications they're on and how they're struggling with that or, you know, how they're currently going through a transition and that they're struggling with that. And I've been able to connect young people with different resources and like that's been really, really meaningful for me. And yeah, for me, like, I know it's meaningful for them, but it's also like builds my confidence and like brings me such joy to connect with young autistic people. And then also being able to talk to them about like, Hey, use your, you have gifts, use your gifts, find out what they are. I love teaching. I love beating. I'm teaching and I'm beating. But yeah, everything about my art practice is autistic. And I, it probably annoys people how much I talk about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the color, the repetition, it really calms my nervous system. Um, and it's been really healing for me. And yeah, I just love it.
0: So tell us a bit about what strengths and challenges has NeuroDivergence given you and what are your top tips for other people?
2: A lot of the strengths and challenges are like the same thing. So I think for one is having a really strong sense of justice and being like a truth teller. Like I, I'll i often say things and name things that other people aren't willing to. And I have. I would say maybe it's perceived as courage. You said before Monique, like going off on someone. Yeah. Like I will do that on the street. If I see something happening, it's like, okay, I've got adrenaline pumping through my body and everything says go intervene. And you need to like do something here. It's hard on my system to do that, but it is important to me to do those things. I mean, sometimes it actually can be unsafe and it's like, why do I have to be like this? And like, why do I have to make a big deal about everything?
0: (laughs) The social justice drive is so strong. Like, I don't know if other people can understand it, but it's almost like you can't eat or sleep and it's all you can think about. And you really are like driven to try to take action on it where you can. You can't like stop and rest. (laughs) It's a compulsion.
2: (laughs) Totally. And it's so physical. It's bodily. My body will shake when I see something like this. Right. And Um, yeah, I think other things I really like about being autistic is like that I'm generous and I like being a helper. I like helping people. Um, and I think people know that they can come to me for help and I like being, I like that. Yeah. Like I like that people will, will trust me enough, um, to, to ask me for help and that, that I will show up, you know, with honesty, uh, and you know, even if I can't help, I'll probably try to still find a way that you can find that help. I think I also, you know, I wrote in my notes, too, that I'm a connector. Like, I love being able to be that conduit for people and connect them to different resources or or friends or or people in community. Um, I like being someone who can help build connections for people. I think when I look at challenges, um, I think, like, the challenges I have are rooted in the gifts that I have not being honored. Like, employment, I didn't have work for a whole year. Um, I had trouble paying for vacations. I. You know, it was luckily I had a roof over my head. I have family members. I had my aunt who could help me. But the reason why I decided, like, I think I need to work for myself and find a way to do that is because people are not going to give me the agency and respect required for me to live well. And so... If there's a way for me to decide how I'm able to work, then I need to do that. So I actually grieved um, quite a lot this spring in realizing like since my diagnosis that, uh, you know, sensory stuff has gotten worse for me as I'm getting older. I'm having more meltdowns as I'm getting older. Like life will be um, like life will be hard. We live in a sick world. And so I I kind of like grieved this idea that I had in my head about, you know, I didn't really understand all these challenges necessarily that I would have. And so, yeah, really changing my life path and where I want to pursue my energy and my gifts. That's sort of been how I'm trying to address that challenge, you know, specifically with employment. But I don't know, self-esteem, like friendships I've had. I've been really traumatized by um, female friendships in particular, thinking I'm best friends with someone, having these really meaningful, wonderful experiences. And in a moment's notice, being like dead to this person. I've experienced that with three friends in my adulthood and it takes quite a toll, I think or it has taken quite a toll about how I view myself and understand myself. Um, you know, like really inherently thinking I'm a really bad person and I just don't know how to act right, I don't know how to treat people right. And so I just shouldn't go out, I shouldn't socialize, I shouldn't build relationships. Um, I shouldn't talk to other people and like I've had times like that for my whole life where I've been like, it's too high risk for me to go to lunch with someone and then have to experience all of this rejection. Then I can just sit at home in my peace. I think for me, the solution or like a tip, whatever to the friendship aspect and like having positive social interactions in my life has been reducing my circle. You know, I, I thought that because people wanted to see me and hang out with me, that I had to, you know, but I would sit there and I like, I would leave and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so drained. I didn't enjoy that. They seem to have a good time. So like, I guess I should be doing that. And then, you know, realizing I had people in my life who would really like exploit my generosity and exploit my friendship. And yeah, so I've just, I've really minimized my circle um, and and really intentionally pursued relationships with other neurodivergent people and other queer people and other indigenous people, because it is like, I think, powerful and life changing to be surrounded by or at least having one person in your life who can understand your experience and can validate your experience. And to like just expressing like any time alone or, you know, I, I want friends who are OK with me canceling on them if I need to. And if you're not okay with that, then that's okay. I don't need to like invest time in in you because I have to, like, I just have to, right? Those are my challenges, but also like tips for those challenges has been like really investing in those particular, like those, those neurodivergent friendships.
1: So Claire, just to finish up today, uh, we'd love to hear if you've got a favourite moment or story um, that just sort of exemplifies how your brain works, or is a good example of you.
2: Yeah. Okay. So one pretty easily came to mind here for me. It uh, makes me laugh a little bit. But uh, okay, we've talked about you know that that social justice, and uh, so I'm an organizer. I do you know I'm I'm part of uh, some grassroots collectives in in Winnipeg. I mean, I just have to, like I, I have to be doing things about things. Sometimes I'll just take on, you know, I'll hear about something. I'll just like take on like a smaller thing with like a friend or a couple of friends or something like that. In Canada, there's been like a really big, like a lot of people claiming indigenous identity when they're just not indigenous. And so, you know, like the word pretendian is uh, a word we use here to describe those people. Yeah, we've had like major big people be revealed to not be indigenous who have like taken tons of You know grants and money intended for indigenous people it's really really sick anyway my friend and i my friend nashwa um is punjabi and moroccan and also worked in politics but is also like an incredible researcher and journalist and i mean i love research worked in politics we have connections so i was chatting with nashwa and she said claire like there's these you know, there's these Punjabi sisters that, you know, people in our community are talking about these sisters, saying that they're claiming to be Inuk when they're not. And, like, do you know anything about this? And so we just began talking. And then a week later, Nashua and I have uh, forgotten all of our uh, responsibilities for the entire week and have come up with a 75 page research document with footnotes. So we found out all of these things about uh, these two women. We found that their family had a long history of defrauding people. So we just deep dove for a week, came up with all of this stuff. For us, it was like, this is wrong. And these people are super privileged people. One of them was a a lawyer. One of them is an engineer. They're young, you know, around my age. and. They are actively doing really awful stuff and they're professionals. One is a lawyer, and if you're an engineer, like you make really you have a really serious code of ethics when you're in those positions. And if you're defrauding people and lying and stealing from indigenous people, and two, they use disabled people to do this. And so Nashua and I were just like, oh no, 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 no. So yeah, we came up with about a 75-page document, mostly Nashua my assistants. She has like Punjabi community. I have, you know, a lot of folks in the indigenous community that I'm connected with. And so we were able to pass this story on to a journalist at um, APTN and it became like a massive uh, national news story. And there's now an RCMP investigation into their fraud. And so, like, I'm not saying that to, like, uh, like, toot my own horn or any. Like, I'm not sharing the story for that reason. I'm only saying this right now. I am I, I didn't really share with anyone, actually, at all. Like, Nashua and I didn't share with anyone that we did this. Um, and even the journalist was like, why did you do this? We were like... <laughs> We're like, I don't know, it's the right thing to do. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> That's such a great
1: story because I think it exemplifies so many different threads of, you know, your how your brain works and, and your neurotype. It's like the strong sense of justice. It's like the hyperfixation, the <laughs> research ability, um, the sense of like, why would I do this for accolades or power or whatever? I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. Um, I have never heard a better story that encapsulates oh. all of these different things. I'm just
0: losing it over the fact that the journalist is <laughs> like, why did you yeah. do this? i
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> 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 like, I don't know if you're a difficult person would no. have invested that much into
1: it. I don't no. know. Man. no. <laughs> So, Claire, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. We're so thankful to have you come on and share all of this knowledge and wisdom and information that's come from your Indigenous community and particularly your Métis community. Um, I think the insights that you've shared, as we've said over the episode today, are going to be invaluable, not just for Indigenous folk, but for anyone that's looking to decolonize their thinking as well and their sense of identity and their approach to different things. So yeah, I can't, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Thanks for having me.
2: It was very fun. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Thank you so much. I just feel like hearing someone speak that is connected to their identities. It's just so powerful. So thank you for sharing. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can do so by subscribing to our Patreon. To become part of our Patreon community, you can buy us
1: a coffee for $5 per month or a wine for $10 per month. All of our Patreon subscribers receive access to a backlog of exclusive content and to a monthly live Zoom hangout with us and our Patreon community. Our Zoom hangouts are a place to ask questions, chat about your experiences, and connect with other neurodivergent women. From this season onward, all Patreons will also receive basic episode transcripts released each week after our episode airs.
0: Patreons shouting us to a monthly wine get all that plus one exclusive content post per month. We really appreciate your support as we aim to make quality mental health information accessible to everyone.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast.
0: If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle, the NeuroDivergent Woman Podcast, or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.